You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. I hear stories all the time about different people who've been in a jam and other people in the church who've helped them financially, and that's, uh, that's such a tremendous, tremendous thing. One of the things, I want to talk about Joseph, and um, I'm going to do a little bit of review over the last several weeks to catch everybody up. And um, But one of the things that struck me about the life of Joseph was we have been through nothing compared to what Joseph went through to, um, to get where, to fulfill his dream. And one of the things I noticed over and over and over as I studied Joseph, was these two words. He served. Why don't you say that with me? He served. And so I probably won't get to that this week, and I'm going to have Andy speak next week. He's got something he wants to share that I think will be good. But I'm going to do a series on Joseph because, number one, I hear, I hear this coming from everywhere about Joseph. But one of the things I um, believe sustained Joseph when he could easily have believed his dreams were gone, in every situation he found himself, he served whoever it was he was with. And I think as a church, we've got to remember that's our real calling. Our real calling is to service, to serve the body of Christ and to serve the world, whether it's through small groups or ministry teams or ushers or greeters or um, men's, women's, or so many things we don't do that we could do. Um, but people who feel like they've lost their dreams, I'm going to tell you that's a secret. That's a key. He served. It's amazing. He was thrown into, you know the whole story, but he was thrown into the prison and in the prison, the Bible clearly says, you remember the baker and the butler were thrown in the prison too? And Joseph was over the, all, over the whole prison at that point. It's amazing. The Bible clearly says, and Joseph served the butler and the baker. And there's so, something so significant connected to, 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 to true humility is you serve uh, the overall purpose of a situation or something. And God pays pays very close attention to that. So this is Joseph part one. And for the last four weeks, we've been studying actually the life of Jacob. And if you've been uh, able to see these or listen to them, you, you recognize the relationship between Joseph being uh, Jacob's favorite son, been sold into slavery. But for the last four weeks, we've been studying Jacob's life and his relationship with his 12 sons. Joseph's restoration to his family and to his father and the personal transformation we find um, occurring in Jacob's life because Jacob, in several different instances, the Lord told him that his name was Israel. And to me, Israel was Jacob's faith name. Uh, Jacob was his old man name. And, and you sort of see throughout the Old Testament, these names come back and forth for one person, Jacob or Israel. And I believe Israel was God's divine special identity for Jacob, 
but Jacob had to find his way into it. And he did that through a series of difficulties and encounters. And so the first week, um, on one occasion, Jacob cries out, all these things are against me. How many of you remember, remember that one? But Jacob was in so much turmoil, that's what he concluded. All these things were against me. But the truth was, when you read the story, God was working all those things for Jacob's benefit to rescue him and his family, to bring him into a place of blessing they could have only dreamed of. So what about our present circumstances? That's the conclusion you've got to draw, and the right conclusion will mean life or despair. Are all these things working against you? Are all these things working for us? I believe the Bible says all these things are working for us. Let me ask you this question. What if that's true? Say that with me. What if that's true? What if that's true? What would you be like if that was true? How would you respond if that were true? You see, we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind because there are many things telling us they're against us. Many things, things like I've never seen in my almost 70 years. Growling, snarling, snapping, threatening. But we have the God of the universe, and he says he works all these things together for our good. Those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I'm about to preach week one all over again. Week two, God wrestled with Jacob until he wore him down to the blessing place of humility and faith. Go back and look at week two if you want to know more more about that. But um, that's where God wrestled Jacob into a place of crying out for mercy and help from God instead of depending on his natural resources. And that's where God gave him this new name. You've prevailed. You're Israel, a prince with God. No longer the schemer but he still schemed a little bit later. How many of you know that life? We do well, then we scheme, then we get caught or we give up, then we come on. That's why he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We got some Jacob working on us, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if you're aware. I'm aware. Uh, Week three, Jacob, with for no good reason, of anything that he had done, discovers God coming to him in a dream, and he stands upon a ladder between heaven and earth, and there are angels ascending and descending. And God gave Jacob lifelong promises to care and provide for him, and Jacob suddenly exclaimed, God is in this place, and I knew it not. I think that's in the Old Testament equivalent to the message of the gospel. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Are you hearing me? You know, I don't know what place you're in geographically, spiritually. Let me tell you, that's the revelation you need to have. God is in this place and I knew it not. God is in that place. God is right there with you, ready to help, ready to transform, ready to communicate. So all of this begins to lead me to want to look at the life of Joseph. And so I had... This question, what kind of person did it take to reverse the fortunes of Jacob and his family? What kind of person did it take? What kind of person saved Jacob? What kind of person was willing to redeem brothers that sold him out? 
who attempted to kill him, who bereaved their father of his favorite child, then lied to him about what they'd done. They sold him and left him in the hands of wandering, nomadic, unprincipled slave traders. What kind of person refused to compromise his standards, abode faithful to his vision, found sustaining faith in confusing, grief-stricken circumstances? Anybody identifying anything yet? Rose above life-threatening false accusation, found grace to serve fellow prisoners, became forgiving and fruitful, beyond imagination. What kind of person could do that who adjusted to an alien culture as a stranger in a strange land? He assimilated so completely, he became unrecognizable to his own family when they arrived, and he ascended as the second most powerful man in Egypt. What kind of man did it take to save Jacob and his family? I want to tell you this kind of man, a dreamer, a dreamer, but more than a dreamer, a dreamer who persevered until God's promises came to pass, a dreamer, a prophetic, revelatory dreamer, a man who learned to serve God in every circumstance, a man who passed every test. You know, you can hardly find a more honorable, a more righteous man in all of the Old Testament than Joseph. It's been said by um, uh, Bible scholars and students of the Scripture that Joseph is the only, basically, I, this is probably arguable, but basically the only Old Testament character of whom there is no fault found in his life. Now, he was precocious. He was probably arrogant. We might look at that later. But basically... He was a remarkable, remarkable man. Psalm 105, verses 17 through 22. I think we have that as an overhead. This is a remarkable, this is a remarkable portion of Scripture because it messes with our minds. How many of you want your mind messed with in a, in a good way? It really messes with my mind when you read this. Verse 17, he being God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. I mean, those two things are in the same sentence. God sent him. He was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons. I'm not so sure I want the Lord to send me anywhere. I can't tell from your mask there. If you, if you give me like a thumbs up every once in a while if I say something humorous or... Uh, Thumbs down, keep to yourself. I know they're there, but uh, they hurt his feet with fetters until the time his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Now, the last three verses are interesting. I don't need to get into them, but read verse 19. What does that say? Until the time that his word came to pass, what tested him? The word of the Lord. What word of the Lord? It was his dreams, those two dreams God gave him that you discover in the very first, um, probably, I don't know, Genesis, I don't know, whatever it is, 30, whatever it is, I don't have it here. 
the word of the Lord were those dreams God gave him. Now, I'm not saying they were the Bible, but yeah, they were the Bible because they made the Bible. But, but no, the dreams God gave Joseph to Joseph were the word of the Lord. Those promises, those dreams. Now, here's the problem with promises. They don't come to pass instantly. I talked to um, Jim Hill last night, two nights ago. Jim's a, a missionary. To me, the most amazing missionary I know. And we support him every month. He and I have a 40-year-old promise that came straight from the throne that has not come to pass yet. Forty years ago in May, we had the most remarkable encounter with the Lord, maybe one of them I'm aware of, embedded with the promise that we thought would be fulfilled instantly. But what happens when your promise doesn't come to pass? That's the issue. Do you let it try you? That's what happened to Joseph. Until the time that his word came to pass. Who's, who's best at bringing the word of the Lord to pass, us or God? God. Are we usually late or usually early? How many of you did it with a good heart with the wrong date? <laughs> Thomas, your little boy's with it, son. He's, uh, we need to put him on the front row. I, I could probably preach better if he was up there. He's awesome. Okay, so God sent Joseph. So God's analysis of Joseph's life and of God's analysis then of our lives is different from our own. He sees from a higher perspective. At the time, Joseph didn't feel like God was sending him anywhere. It felt painful, and it was painful. Hello, it was. We don't have to ignore that like things aren't painful when they are. We just have to deal with it. We have to face it for what it is. And it felt like trauma, and it was. He was stripped naked and put into chains and sold into slavery and, and God says, believe it or not, he sent a man before them, even Joseph. So you have to wrestle with that. The phrase shows us that no matter what man God does, can, God can transform it. He can redeem it. He can use it for our good. That's what we need to be convinced of to make it through the worst of times. I'll tell you another thing that helped Joseph endure was it was his sense of righteousness. Genesis 45, 4 through 7, Joseph said to his, um, nope, I'm off. Let me stop there. To further this idea of God's analysis of our lives being different from our own, Joseph actually saw this. Genesis 45, verse 4, now Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. He says, please come near to me. So they came near. He said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Don't you know they were terrified? Terrified. Second most powerful man. They had betrayed in the worst possible way. But then Joseph says, 
But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Then he says it again. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. How many times does God have to affirm us over and over? Because we just don't get it. There are things in our hearts, experiences, wounds, hurts, feelings, whatever they are, and it's almost like God has to penetrate and penetrate and penetrate and penetrate. How many of you are with me? He wants to tell us over and over how much he cares for us. He wants us, if we need to, to ignore our circumstances and listen more to the word of the Lord than to what has happened to us. And then Joseph says again, way over in verse or chapter 50 of Genesis, but as for you, he even says this, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Let me say this, ladies and gentlemen, the dreams God's given you are the word of the Lord, but he's got to fulfill it. You can't give them up. If they're legit, you've got to hang on to them. If they seem impossible, you hang on to them. Or he tells you you're wrong one way or the other. But you cannot give up your dreams. You can't afford to let go of your dreams. Without a vision, the people perish. Or without a vision, the people cast off restraint. And I think this is a description of many, many people. Proverbs 29, 18, that's what I was quoting, where there is no revelation. Say that with me. Where there is no revelation, what do the people do? They cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. Here's what that says to me. If you do not, if you do not pastor your own dream, do you understand what I'm saying? If you do not take care of your own dream, you will stop living in a righteous manner. See, disappointment can be a huge enemy. And for so many people, they've not only been disappointed, they've gone into all kind of moral decline and moral collapse. But the scripture says a different uh, translation where there's no vision, no revelation, no prophetic vision, no dream, people perish. But he that keeps the law, happy is he. What do you do while you wait on your dream to come to pass? You live the right way. You do the right thing. You maintain your integrity. You keep your focus. You have a moral north star. Read the Ten Commandments. It will tell you pretty clearly what it's like to live a righteous life. As you wait for the fulfillment, you know, I think there's a danger where we can um, uh, lose our inheritance b- because we become so disillusioned or disappointed that we forget that none of our disillusionments or none of our disappointments can ever stop God from doing what he wants to do in our lives if we will simply do the best we can to pay attention and walk with him. Come on, somebody ought to do a little something with that. You can't afford to give up your dreams. How 
How did Joseph continue to move forward in the face of adversity? I'll call it righteous endurance. In Genesis 39, it came to pass after these things that Potiphar's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said to him, lie with me. But Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There's no greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you're his wife. And then here is Joseph's proclamation of of his character. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Let me read that again. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. Because Joseph knew his conduct reflected what he thought about God. Even when David committed adultery and he repented in Psalm 51, what did he say? Against you, O Lord, even he said, and you only have I sinned. Well, I would say he'd sinned against way more people than just the Lord. But he saw that his conduct, his behavior reflected the Lord, and he was a representative of the Lord. How could he do that? So you may be a dreamer. You may feel like your dreams are dead. But you can't sacrifice your character for fear of your dreams having died. You must not cast off restraint. You must not give in to destructive behavior. Big dreams require you to develop huge moral capacities and refined character to fulfill the promises God's given you. Come on. So I hear a lot of people talking about Joseph now. Let me tell you another group of Bible verses that I have heard from three different places in the last three days. And I know the Lord's saying this. I know we need to listen to it. And, and let me tell you something that disturbs me about me. It's how little I have really understood the gospel in some ways. And I'm going to show you why. And I think you're going to realize you might be in the same boat. Second Peter 1, 4 through 9. And I believe we have that too. Can you? We don't have that one. Okay. We'll read this in, a, in particularly in the Passion Translation. It'll stir you up. Everything we could ever need for life. Let me say that again. Everything. Somebody please say that. Everything we could ever need for life and complete devotion to God has already been deposited in us. What if that's true? How do we we relate to that? Has been deposited in us by his divine power. For all this was lavished upon us, past tense, through the rich experience of knowing him who has called us by name and invited us to come to him through a glorious manifestation of his goodness. Everything we need for life and devotion to God has already been deposited in us by his divine power. What if that's true? The Bible says it's true. Our experience tells us it's not true. But the Bible, Peter, who would know best? A man like Peter, who had the most, one of the most horrific failures in all the scripture? Who would know that best? 
our experience of the Apostle Peter. As a result of this, he has given you magnificent promises that are beyond all price so that through the power of these tremendous promises, you can experience partnership with the divine nature by which you've escaped the corrupt desires that are of the world. So devote yourselves to lavishly supplementing your faith with goodness and to goodness add understanding and to understanding add the strength of self-control and to self-control add patient endurance and to patient endurance add godliness and to godliness add mercy toward your brothers and sisters and to mercy toward others add unending love. Here again, listen, since these virtues are already, say that one word already, already planted deep within and you possess them in abundant supply, they will keep you from being inactive or fruitless in your pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ more intimately. In verse 9, but if anyone lacks these things, he is blind. Didn't say he's rebellious. He's blind. What does that mean? He doesn't see that what I just read is true. He doesn't see. He he doesn't see that God has done that. Now, this really challenges me. But it's the same idea expressed in, in the book of Ephesians. I'll just read this. And as I read this, Thomas... Why don't, um, why don't you come on and, and begin to prepare? We're going to have, have our communion. But let me just affirm this one verse. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us as a love gift from our wonderful heavenly Father. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished. Where is it? Inside of you in Christ. So as Thomas comes, I'm going to pray. Thank you, Thomas. Father, thank you so much for your word that challenges us and for these examples that you have given us of people like Jacob and Joseph. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't have a communion packet. I believe they're out in the hallway to grab. Um, I much prefer the sharing of one common loaf and ripping it into pieces and breaking it. It's a much fuller picture, but in the day of distancing, we can make an exception and I'm pretty sure God can still perform the miracle. Of course he can, which is why to our family at home who's streaming in, get your elements and share with us in this communion. Um, distancing is a year ago, would we have heard that word and thought, what is distancing? What does that mean? And now it's such a part of our culture and our life. And in some ways, communion feels like the opposite of distancing. Common union, one togetherness. Um, and communion is a tactile expression of our connectedness in the midst of distancing. So this is a practice we can do in a very physical way 
right? The tactile, let, let, let the physicality affect you. The actual act of taking bread and wine and consuming it. What a physical, messy process. Chewing, swallowing, digesting. And even before that, growing wheat, growing grapes, harvesting them, ripping the wheat from the earth, plucking the grapes from the vine, purifying these ingredients, the drying, the purification, crushing wheat into flour, crushing grapes, cooking it, putting it into a fire. It's a messy, tactile, physical process to create bread and wine, which we then lift up as priests, right? The the act of communion, the sacramental act is us lifting these elements up and saying, God, make this something of heaven. This is your body and your blood, giving it back to us as something life-giving, sharing it. It's a picture of ourselves. The messy, breaking, crushing process is part of our purification, is part of our sacramental act of becoming, of being blessed, of becoming holy. The crushing is necessary. Lord, teach us how to be crushed. This water is poured into this wine. This cup, the chalice of salvation. Recalling the water which flowed from the side of the Son of God. May the mingling of this water and wine, which are now inseparable, remind us that Christ is being joined to our humanity And our humanity is being joined to his deity, never to be separated. Lord, as we share in your body and your blood, we share in communion as this physical act that unites us in this room, that unites us in Queen City, that unites us in the church worldwide and unites us with the Trinity in heaven. Lord, we just take a moment to reflect We ask forgiveness. We confess that we have not loved you. We have not loved our neighbor. We have sinned in thought, word, and deed. So let's just take a moment and just intentionally confess that. And as we share this, Lord, we share in your forgiveness. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread in his hands and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this as a remembrance for me. Go ahead and eat the wafer. There's another prayer from the Eastern Church. It says the body of Christ, broken but not divided, ever eaten but never consumed. Likewise, after they had eaten, he took the cup and he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this as remembrance for me. And that same Eastern prayer adds that this 
adds this prayer, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. As the body and the blood, our humanity and his deity, now inseparable, becomes a part of us and a part of us. I'll close this out. As we go into our week, let the fullness of the connectedness, the common union, the, the physical unity, despite our distancing, that we share both in Queen City, the church worldwide, and with the Trinity. Let that fullness lead us. Let us always remember it. Let us be in the top of our thoughts when we wake and our final thought before we go to bed. And I'll close this with a benediction from the book of Numbers, chapter 6. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forever. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.